0: Can we turn to the Word of God and the verses that I would like us to consider tonight are found in Romans 12 and verses, uh, well it's verse 15, but I'm going to read to you from Romans chapter 12 and verses 14 to 16. So let's hear the Word of God from the letters of the Romans and chapter 12 and verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Well, some of the most Interesting experiences of our lives are also the most challenging. This week uh, there has been talk of dropping the English name for Snowdon and only using the Welsh name. Pictures of that mountain were on the television, in the news broadcasts, and they brought back memories for me of the one and only time that I have climbed Wales's highest mountain. It was one of the most exciting things I have ever done. Very rewarding when you reach the summit, but it was also the most challenging thing physically that I've ever done. It required determination and strength and perseverance and courage. And Romans chapter 12 reminds us that when God in his great grace, calls us to salvation by repentance and faith in his son Jesus, we begin a new life that is both exciting and challenging. And these verses set before us both the excitement, the joy of the Christian life, the varied nature of it, but also the great challenge Of living as a Christian. This paragraph is especially tough. None of the verses in this chapter are easy but this paragraph is particularly tough because we're being told that as Christians we must be careful how we react in different situations. Now, the way that you behave, the way that you act as a Christian is vitally important. Of course it is. But acting, after careful consideration, is one thing. But reacting is often quite another. Because we don't have that time to think and consider. You react to something. And it's almost instinctive. Now, in our text this evening... We're told that we must rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn or weep with those who, who weep. Now when we first read that verse, we think, oh, well, th- that's right, that's quite correct. We might also say, well, that's quite easy, it's quite natural. I can get alongside people and I can be really happy for them. And I can get alongside people when they're sad, and I can be really sad with them. When they are happy, I am happy, and when they're sad, I can sympathize with them. And we might say, well, what's difficult about that? Surely the apostle is telling us something that will come quite naturally to us. But I want to suggest to you that that's very superficial, You see, think about what is actually being said here. You're being told to enter into somebody else's experience as far as you are able to do that. You're being told to share with them what they are feeling. And particularly, you're being told that if someone has been especially blessed by God has been especially favoured by him to receive something good and rewarding for them, then we are to be glad for them and with them. It's not just a matter of being glad for them, it's a matter of being glad with them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And then we're also told that when someone has been on the receiving end, Of some terrible experience from God, some great loss that has hurt them deeply and caused them to weep, we are to enter into their sorrow and we are to weep with them. You might remember in the book of Job in the Old Testament that Job experienced the most dreadful things from the hand of the Lord. And he was in a most desperate state, having lost everything, humanly speaking. And then you remember that there were Job's friends, his three friends, who took that journey to see him. Now we're very quick to criticise them, and indeed the word of God criticises them, because later in the book they try to understand the situation and they get it wrong. But let's not forget that when they take that journey to see their friend, they find him sitting in ashes. And what do they do? Well, for seven days and for seven nights, they don't say a word. But they sit down with him. Now that's quite something, isn't it? Before you go on to criticise them, quite rightly, don't forget that they did that. They sat down on the ground with their friend Job and for seven days and for seven nights they did not speak a single word. Could you have done that? Could I? Would we have done it? That is what we're being told here. But much more than that, really. So these words, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, these are not natural, instinctive reactions. We need to realize that. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying in this chapter. If this was something just natural and instinctive for everybody, then what would be the point of of saying it? And particularly of including it when he is instructing us as believers. Don't forget that. That's what he's doing here first couple of verses of the chapter remind us that he's speaking to believers. He's speaking to those who have known the mercy and the grace of God in salvation. He's saying now this is the transformed life that you must live. Now if this is the transformed life, if this is a result of the renewing of our minds, then it must be that these things are not natural to the natural human being. The person who has not received the grace of God. So, although we might like to imagine that we would rejoice with those who rejoice, who have been just favoured by God and received great blessing, and, and that we would sit down and share in the experiences of those who are grieving, the reality is that these things do not come to us instinctively. When someone is rejoicing at some blessing in their lives naturally it is all too easy for us to be filled with jealousy and envy that could even lead to hatred. The word of God tells us that that is the natural sinful response. If you look at Galatians and chapter 3 for instance in Galatians and chapter 3 and verse 20 Galatians chapter 3 we read that uh, sorry it's not Galatians 3 Galatians 5 and verse 20 these are the acts of the sinful nature the apostle says that they're obvious they include idolatry witchcraft hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. This is contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit. So what he is saying there is that by nature, our natures are sinful, left to ourselves without the grace of God that is our response. He mentions the same in the, in the letter to Titus when he's instructing Titus about his work on Crete. And in Titus and chapter 3 and verse 3 we read at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy being hated and hating one another. That is the natural, unregenerate response when someone is rejoicing at some blessing in their lives. Envy and jealousy so easily and so naturally rise to the surface. And what about when someone is mourning and weeping because of some tragedy or misfortune Our great temptation is to say, well, they deserved that, didn't they? Or to say, well, I'm glad it wasn't me. Or even to gloat over somebody else's misfortune. Proverbs in chapter 17 and verse 5 speaks of this sort of response. He who mocks the poor shows contempt for their maker whoever gloats over disaster will not go unpunished. And yet how easy that is to say, well, I'm glad that happened to them. You know, they've got their comeuppance at last, haven't they? It's so easy to do that. It's not natural, it's not instinctive to rejoice with those who rejoice or to weep and mourn with those who who weep and mourn. We need to search our hearts and see that this is True. The testimony of Scripture is true. And our own consciences agree with that. Some people by nature are more empathetic than others, there's no doubt about that. But in all of us, there is this tendency, this natural reaction, without the grace of God, to respond with envy and jealousy and and to gloat over others' disasters. It's a result of sin. And self-centeredness and the absence of grace in our hearts. So these are not natural, instinctive reactions. So if they're not natural, instinctive, then then how are we to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn? Well, these responses, these reactions, are the practical result of our experience and our doctrine. Our experience is that we have come into a new family. Remember, the Apostle Paul is speaking to Christians here. He's speaking to believers, those who have received the mercy and the grace of God. And our experience is that we've come into a new family. We've become part of a new body of people called the church. The Apostle has already spoken about this in verses 4 and 5. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. He's writing about the fact that when you become a Christian, you are becoming a part of a great family of believers. And that family of believers is described as a body. And each one of us is a member of that body, joined to all the others. And if one part is honoured, then all the members rejoice with it, says the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 12, when he's talking about the same great experience of being part of this body. When one part of the body is honoured, then Everybody, all the other parts rejoice with it, and also when one part suffers, every part suffers with it one corinthians twelve twenty six that 's our experience that 's what happened to us as christians it 's the most wonderful thing that has ever happened to anyone, and it happens to every single believer the moment that we come to Christ in salvation, the moment that the Holy Spirit works that great work in our heart. We immediately are changed. And and we emphasize the individual part of that, don't we? We very often emphasize the individual nature of salvation. And, And that is true. We're forgiven of all of our sins. We're reconciled to God. Whereas once we were enemies... We're adopted into the family of God so that we can call him Abba, Father. All these things are true, but there is something else that is wonderfully true, and that is that we have been brought into fellowship with every other believer, and most particularly, we've been brought into this relationship with others in the local church that we are part of the body of Christ. And we are family. We are brothers and sisters in that Closest of all relationships, closer even than the natural human family, are our brothers and sisters in Christ. That is our experience and that's what leads us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. But it's not just our experience that leads to this reaction. It's not just the fact that you feel this sense of being one with others in the church and that when you hear that a member of the church is rejoicing over something glorious and wonderful, the Lord has been good to them, they've had an answer to prayer perhaps, or the Lord has blessed them in another particular way. And when you hear of that, your heart goes out in rejoicing and you rejoice with them and praise God for all that they have been through. And also when you hear that a member of the church is suffering, someone is deeply unwell, or someone has suffered some some terrible tragedy in their lives, someone uh, has lost their job, somebody has uh, has hit times of hardship, somebody has perhaps... Uh, got a a deep and, and lasting illness or been bereaved your heart again goes out because you know that they're your brother and your sister and you have this family feeling because of your experience but it's not just our experience that leads to this reaction it's also our doctrine and this is most important the things that we believe the things that we believe as Christians lead to the way that we behave. Doctrine. The doctrine is the doctrine of the body of Christ, the church. Again, this doctrine is very clearly set out here in Romans, in verses 3 to verse 8 of Romans 12. This great teaching. This is what we believe. We believe that the church is not an organisation. It is not just a place where people can come if they wish to come. The church is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And each one of us is a member and each one of us belongs to all the others. That's what we believe, that's what we declare, that's what the word of God teaches us. And it's something that needs to really enter deeply into our minds and our understanding so that that is the way that we see the church. That is the way that we understand one another. That is what we we believe when we're coming together. That's exactly what we're doing. We are part of the body of Christ and we are expressing that every time we meet. But not just when we meet on a Sunday for maybe an hour or two. This is something that is true for us as true on a Monday morning as it is on a Sunday evening. And it's true all the way through the week. And and we we believe this and it should affect the way that we behave. Communion, we we will later on uh, remember the Lord Jesus' death for us. But communion is a great picture of the body of Christ, isn't it? On the one hand, of course, it speaks to us of our individual relationship with Jesus and it's right for us to understand that that when we come to communion we are saying when we take bread and we take wine we are saying the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself on the cross of Calvary for me we are saying the Lord Jesus Christ shed his blood on Calvary's cross for the forgiveness of my sins. Absolutely right. If we cannot say that, then we ought not to take communion because it is meaningless. It is a personal declaration of our faith. Every time we take that bread, every time we take that wine, we are actually saying that, we're declaring that to God. We're saying, I believe that Jesus Christ died for me, in my place. But that's not all we're doing in communion. The other thing we're doing in communion is communing with one another. We are doing this not as an individual, but we're doing this as an individual amongst many others in the body of Christ And we're saying when we take the communion, I am one with everyone else in this place. We are one family, taking the bread together. One of the great sadnesses, and it is a deep sadness, is that we cannot be served the communion at the moment. We look forward to the day when we'll be able to be served. You might think that it is just a practical thing. No, it's not. It's much more than that. When you are being served, you are being given bread, and then the person next to you is being given bread, and so on. And everybody is served. And then even at the front, the minister is not a priest, he's part of the body. And he is also served the bread. And then those who serve are served. And so we're serving one another. And the fact that we do this together speaks to us of what we deeply believe and understand that we are part of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ There's not, not just an individual vertical relationship going on there in communion it's not just between you and God there is very much a horizontal relationship as well where we are corporately unitedly in fellowship with one another, taking bread and wine, and declaring, I'm with my brothers and sisters. I'm in the family of God here. And this is where I belong. But I also belong to everybody else. So our practice will prove whether we truly know and hold to this doctrine. If we really do believe these things, they will affect the way that we live. That's true of every single Christian doctrine. And it's true of this one, the doctrine of the body of Christ. If we really believe that, if we really and honestly believe that we are with brothers and sisters, and that this is the body of Christ, what it means that we will rejoice when another Christian is honoured. And we will sit and weep with another member who is mourning. Apostle Paul practised what he preached. We do not find this apostle as someone who is just pontificating and and giving out instructions to others and above all of this. He is not. He is deeply involved in the lives of the other believers. He really does believe that these things are true for him as well as for us. So in 2 Corinthians and chapter 11 we find the Apostle Paul speaking in this way. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 27. I have laboured and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressures of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? You see, when someone was weak, he felt it deeply in his being. And we'll do the same when we're able to be with anyone we know and we can relate to who is going through a time of great rejoicing or a time of great sorrow. And it overflows, not only with the people of the church, the body of Christ, but this sort of behavior overflows into the world with our relationship with unbelievers as well. You have a neighbor. And your neighbour is not a believer. And yet that neighbour is rejoicing in something wonderful that's happened. A baby has been born perhaps. Someone has got a great job or they've been particularly favoured. And you rejoice with them. And you share with them in that without envy or jealousy. Or your neighbour is going through a time of bereavement and weeping. And rather than keeping away from them, you visit them. You, you share with them in their sorrow. It speaks a lot to be able to do that. Hardness of heart and a lack of sympathy are simply not Christian at all. We are being called to enter into the experiences of others and to share in those experiences. And it's part of the Christian giving. You give yourself in these situations. So they are the practical result of our experience being part of the body of Christ but also our doctrine of the body of Christ and also our doctrine of love for our neighbours. And then they mark us out as Christians. This sort of behaviour rejoicing with those who rejoice and mourning with those who mourn it will mark you out as a Christian simply because it's not the natural behaviour It is against the common responses that we see around us. When we live in a culture and in a world where there is so much that is centred on on me and what I need, when we find people who are outward looking, concerned for others, we say, well, there's something different there. And for Christians, we must be different. So we return to the first few verses of this chapter 12 of Romans and remind ourselves that Obeying this verse marks us out as those who have been transformed by the renewing of our minds because we've received the great mercy of our God. We've thought about these things. This is why I mentioned doctrine. You see, it's, it's to do with what we think and what we believe. It's the renewing of our mind that is important. The way that you think about other people will affect the way that you behave. And as Christians we don't just behave from the heart, we don't just respond in, in feelings, we respond first of all by thinking and understanding and being transformed in the way that we see the world, the framework that we, we have to understand everything that's going on around us. It's a biblical framework and that is where we must begin, with the renewing of our minds which marks out us as Christians Christians will rejoice with those who rejoice. Remember in the Lord's parable of the lost sheep in Luke chapter 15. What do we read when the shepherd comes back? He says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. That's it, isn't it? Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. How do we feel when somebody becomes a Christian? When we hear that somebody has been saved. When we hear that in some other church, somebody has come to faith. How do we feel? We Rejoice, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep, says the shepherd. The Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. Rejoice, he says. Someone has come to faith. Or do we say, oh, that's not happening in my church. Oh, the people that I'm praying for are not being saved. As a Christian, we rejoice when others are saved, don't we? In the same parable, the lost son, we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. But remember, those words were spoken by the father to the older son who was outside, feeling aggrieved, feeling that he wasn't being treated as he ought to be treated. And the father comes to persuade him. The father there is a picture of God himself, isn't it? God the father, who says, we've got to be glad. We've got to celebrate because this person has been saved. And then doesn't Jesus say to us in John 4 that the sower and the reaper will rejoice together in the harvest? and so it may be that your work is a work of sowing the seed and you've laboured for many many years perhaps as a Sunday school teacher perhaps you've worked in a church and you've been involved in sharing the gospel the good news with others and you've seen very little fruit for your labours at all you say I don't know any any of those Sunday school children who ever came to faith I really don't know but I've been sowing that seed and then somebody else reaps Somebody else is there when that person comes to faith in the Lord Jesus, maybe after years of the seed being sown. How do you feel? Oh, well, I'm always the sower and never the reaper. Jesus says, no, the sower and the reaper will rejoice together in the harvest, whatever work the Lord has given you to do. When that results in the salvation of souls, you rejoice together remember Barnabas in Acts chapter 11 he, he's told to go up to Antioch because they've heard that there have been people up there who have received the word of God and he discovers that the Gentiles have responded to the word of God and oh he goes up to Antioch to to examine to see the evidence and what do we read of dear Barnabas that son of encouragement when he saw the evidence of the grace of God he was lads and the dear apostle John right at the end of his life a very very old man he writes his third letter 3 John verse 3 oh he says that he has great joy when he hears that people are being faithful to the truth great rejoicing you see that should be the thing that rejoices us more than any other That someone has been favoured by God with the grace of salvation. But all other mercies of God should also cause us to rejoice. It's not just rejoicing, is it? It's also weeping. It's also weeping. And in some respects, that is just as hard as rejoicing. But for this, surely the greatest example of all is our Lord Jesus. We read of him, didn't we, in John chapter 11 at the tomb of Lazarus Jesus didn't have to go there Lazarus would rise again at the resurrection on the last day Mary and Martha both knew that it was the Lord's sovereign choice to come or not to come but he go, he went he did go it was dangerous to go Last time he was anywhere near Jerusalem, people had tried to kill him. But he went. And not only did he go, but he entered into the grief of Mary and Martha. Does it surprise you that Jesus wept? Does that surprise you? You say, well, he, he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So why is Jesus weeping? Well, I there's a depth there, isn't there, that we dare not try to try to plumb too deeply because it's the Lord, isn't it? But we can at least say this. He was weeping with Mary and Martha. They were weeping and he shared in that depth of sorrow. It's also that sense of the awfulness of sin, isn't it? And its consequences. That the Lord Jesus wept with them at the grave of Lazarus. And what about the Lord Jesus' compassion for the lost? When he saw them as sheep without a shepherd and he weeps for Jerusalem. What about us? Do we feel that sense of compassion towards those who are lost? Do we feel that people are dying, perishing and that they are entering an eternity of punishment and separation from God? Does that make us weep? Does the plight of the lost move us? Does the gospel move us to greater pity and concern for the lost? Mary Slesser was a, a missionary to calabar in uh, nigeria mary lesser went to the she went to the uh, conference in edinburgh in 1910 and uh, in 1910 with the, uh, the, the the missionary conference there She was listening to everything that was happening and she was also just looking around and and she was concerned about everything that was, was being said there because what was happening was that people were speaking as if there was no hell, as if there was no eternal punishment, as if there was no sense of the lostness of sinners. She was deeply, deeply moved by all of this. And because she was so deeply moved, later on she asked this. Where are the men? Are there no heroes in the making among us? No hearts beating high with the enthusiasm of the gospel? Men smile today at the old-fashioned idea of sin and hell and broken law and perishing world. But these ideas made men, men of purpose, of power and achievement and self-denying devotion to the highest ideals earth has known. I ask you again, what about the lost? Does it move us? Do we weep? because of the lostness of a world because of hell and its and the consequences of the rejection of the gospel Mary Slessor could say way back there in 1910 those words seem so, so up to date don't they where are the men where are those whose hearts are beating with enthusiasm for the gospel we need to weep with those who weep. The lost don't weep for themselves, do they? But they should do. If only they knew. And they need to hear. So we need to have this sense of entering into the experiences of others. Their rejoicings and their sadnesses. This is a world of ups and downs. It's a world of great rejoicing and great sorrow. It's a world of great blessing and great tragedy. And the Christian is marked out as a child of God and a follower of the Saviour by our reactions to others. We need God's grace. Even as Christians, these things do not come easily. They come from a renewed heart and from a a mind that is in tune with the word of God. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who rejoice. May God give us grace to live like that for his glory. To prepare us for the communion, I would like to read hymn number 430, a hymn written by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Amidst us our beloved stands and bids us view his pierced hand points to his wounded feet and side, blessed emblems of the crucified. What food luxurious loads the board, when at his table sits the Lord, the wine how rich, the bread how sweet, when Jesus deigns the guests to meet. If now with eyes defiled and dim we see the signs but see not him, O oh, may his love the scales displace and bid us see him face to face our past delights we now recount when with him on the holy mount these cause our souls to thirst anew his marred but lovely face to view o oh, glorious bridegroom of our hearts your present smile a heaven imparts o oh, lift the veil if veil there be, that every saint your beauties see. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we do ask that as we now conclude this part of our service and prepare ourselves for the communion, that you would help us. Help us, O Lord, that the things that we believe would move us to act. We pray that you would deliver us from a head knowledge and from a religion that is only in our minds. We pray that what we believe might change us, so that we might be the people that you would have us to be, more and more like our dear Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.